open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Today we come to another of those little gems that we find in Scripture uh, here in the Sermon on the Mount. These are just these little gospel truths that we find here. Some of these you've heard since you were a child. In chapter 5, it was the foolishness of a man who takes a candle, lights it, and then hides it under a basket. And thus we have the children's song, This Little Light of Mine. In chapter 6, it was the Lord's Prayer. And although we don't think of that as a children's song, yet it has been made into a song, and people sing it reverently in churches week after week. In chapter 7, we saw another little gem of Scripture, one that most nursery children learn. Uh, Even those who don't even know anything about Christ have heard what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse number 12, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And today we have another one of these. The children sing it. Uh, There's scarcely an adult who hasn't heard about this. And it's the story that Jesus told about the wise man and the foolish man. One built his house upon a rock, and the other built his house upon sand. But like these other ones that I've mentioned, most people don't connect these sayings with the greatest sermon that was ever preached. The light that is spoken of in chapter 5 is the gospel of Christ, and that shines out because of obedience to Christ's commands. They don't know that the Lord's Prayer should never be said by anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because to do so would be blasphemy. And they don't know that the golden rule is a positive command that's never been kept by anyone perfectly except the Lord Jesus Christ and that the golden rule represents actually 60% of the Ten Commandments. And you can't keep all of them without keeping that other 40%, which says that we are to love God, not only love our fellow man. And also they have no idea that the rock on which you are to build your life is the teachings of Jesus Christ that we find in three chapters in Matthew. Now they hear this, build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is a somewhat abstract idea. What they have is the idea, if we do this, there'll be peace, love, and harmony. There will be uh, peace with all creatures, and that's kind of their idea about Jesus. But to build your life upon Christ means strict obedience to all of his commands. And building your life upon him is actually the most difficult building project that you will ever face. It doesn't bring peace, love, and harmony with all creatures. Instead, it's more likely to bring you pain, suffering, and the rejection of all men. But the hedge against that pain, suffering, and rejection is that the Bible teaches that when you have built your house with this solid foundation, that there will be peace at the end. And when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you will know that the Lord is with you. And we're going to read these familiar scriptures, and we're going to learn what Jesus meant by the wise man and the foolish man. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look into God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat up on that house, and it fell, 
and great was the fall of it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word today. And I do pray, Lord, that you would open up this passage before us and help us to understand clearly what Jesus meant. Who is the wise man, which is mostly what we're going to consider today. Bless our people as we go into the sermon, the message today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In order to understand this final illustration that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount, we do have to recognize the context in which it's spoken. And this is one of those stories that's often taken out of context. There are many sermons that have been preached from this. This has been made into devotions. As I said just a moment ago, it's been made into a children's song. And all of that has happened to it without people really considering the solemnity of the setting. These are the last words of a sermon that Jesus preached that made such righteous demands upon the people that when he was finished with the sermon, it left the people in utter hopelessness. This was intended for one purpose. It was to drive them to their knees so they could do no other than to smite themselves upon the breast and to plead for the mercy and the grace of God. Their religious leaders had given them false hope There was a dizzying array of of obscure rules that had been made. And the, the, the religious leaders had taught them that in order for a person to be saved, you had to keep all of these rules and that your righteousness could actually be attained from within. And yet they never knew if they had actually done enough to be saved because they looked at their religious leaders and they found out that they were obviously hypocritical. They didn't keep the same sayings that they told the people they had to abide by. So as a religious system that was very corrupt, they hadn't kept the rules. Jesus said, they say and they do not. And in Matthew 23, verse 4, he said, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And so these leaders, in the privacy of their own homes, in the secrecy of their lives, in places where they weren't seen by others... They did not keep their own rules, or at least they made them easier on self than they did on other people. So there was no hope in this system, and so Jesus exposed all of this. The wise man and the foolish men are examples of the right way and the wrong way to build your life. And for these people that Jesus was speaking to, it was to make sure that the outward, what you claim to be, is actually supported by something that is inward, And the outside of two people's lives can actually look very much alike. But what lies underneath can be very different. So what we have here is a test. Uh, Your profession is being tested. Are you a genuine Christian or is the surface as far as your Christianity goes? And this is really an illustration of what we found in verse number 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you may have thought that after three messages on those verses 21 through 23 that we were through with this. But we're not through. Uh, Jesus has another illustration to give. So if he's not done, we're not done. So we're going to look at this illustration. And it's really more profound than people would imagine. It's something that we do need to look at very carefully. So we're going to begin with this today. The contrast of construction. And in the beginning here of the message, I call this contrast, even though these are two people that seem to be more similar than they do dissimilar. There's a house that's being built. 
And this house, very simply, represents the character of one's life. This house is your beliefs. This is the profession that you make. It's the structure of your life. It's the hope that you have of eternal life. It's also the security of your assurance that you're saved. And if you want to take it a step further, it's a proof of your Christianity. How you live your life, what you show, and what is behind that, what you believe, how you act, and how you love, this is all considered in the illustration. So this part of the sermon is an illustration of the danger of self-deception. And it proceeds from those verses 21 through 23. And so we see that from verses 13 all the way down to verse number 27, Jesus has this very same thought in mind. Here we have two different types of lives. Now we notice that it's always one or the other. When Jesus is speaking, it's always one or the other. Because according to Scripture, there are only two types of people. There are only two options. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. In chapter 6, it's darkness and light. In verses 13 and 14, in chapter 7, it's either the narrow way or it's the broad way. It's either the wide gate or it's the straight gate. It's either life or it's destruction. In verses 15 through 20, it's a corrupt tree or it's a good tree. It's good fruit or it's bad fruit. And here it's the wise man or a foolish man. It's a foundation built upon a rock or a foundation on sand, a house that stands or a house that falls. There's never enter any in-between. You are either inside or you are outside. You are either saved or you are lost. You are either in Christ or you don't know Christ. You're either in his kingdom or you're not in his kingdom. There isn't any other ground to stand on. You can't be neutral. And which side that you fall on makes a difference in the world and in eternity. And folks, what we're really talking about here then is two things, heaven or hell. And we notice also that the real determiner of what you are and where you are going after this life is the unseen that's underneath. This is what Jesus is mainly talking about here, a foundation, the unseen that is underneath. Now, foundations are not usually visible. Builders don't build houses and then invite you to come and to dig down in the earth to view this foundation that they put under the house. My wife and I were in the process of buying a house several months ago. We had a realtor who took us around to many different houses, and there were houses that we loved. They were arranged very nicely. There were model homes that we went into. They had nice furniture, and they had paint schemes that were great. They had lovely kitchens with granite countertops. Many of them had huge bathrooms with polished faucets and tile showers, and they really looked great. But not at any time. And in all of the houses that we looked at, did the realtor say, now what I want you to do next is go over here and get your shovel because we're going to dig down and we're going to have a look at the foundation. And I want to show you that this builder has put this house upon a good foundation. We didn't do that. Instead, we made a decision about whether we liked those houses by what we saw on the surface. We didn't see what was underneath. And the truth is, all that we ever saw was paint and carpet and tile We couldn't even see behind the drywall. We didn't know what was there. So we certainly did not look at the foundation. We just accepted that what we saw on the surface was what we liked, and that's what we accepted. So the scriptures are showing us here that from the ground up, things can look great. Things can look very much the same. And in your life, looking at two people from the ground up, what people are on the outside 
can be very different from what you find underneath. Now, in church today, you might be sitting next to someone who sings the same songs. They follow along reading the same scriptures. They bow their head when we pray. They listen intently as I preach the message. But underneath, down in the soul, the place that you can't see, that person sitting next to you may be very different from you. And that's really the point as it follows here from verses 21 through 23. There are many wonderful works that can be shown. Lots of that can be demonstrated. False evidence can be given. And it's not until a storm blows through, when the rain comes in torrents, when the wind beats against your spiritual house, whether it's with trials and tribulations, or whether it is the judgment that comes in the end, that it can really that it's really told what is fall or what is there underneath, or the truth of really who you are is revealed. And I'm thankful for this, that the purpose of this particular parable is not to abandon you before the storm comes so that you don't have any hope to correct the issue. It really doesn't do much good for us to talk about these two foundations and again about two houses that have defects. One may have defects and you have no hope that you could ever change that, that you could ever do something about it. And then the storm comes through and it blows the house down. I'm thankful that the Lord has given us an opportunity here for us to consider, to think about it through closer examination, to see that we don't have a destroyed life in the end. So the purpose of this parable is for you to scrutinize more carefully, to see what it is that lies underneath your spiritual house. The last words that you hear, you don't want them to be, depart from me, I never knew you. So all the care... All the concern can be done in building the superstructure. You can arrange all of the materials neatly and have them perfectly assembled. But if the foundation is not right, then the house will fall. And so this parable starts out with two very similar men. They have similar objectives. And it's actually the similarities that make the final outcome of their lives such a study in stark contrast. There is a vital, fundamental difference between these two people. And we'll find that out as we study both of their lives. But as we begin here, they look very similar. We would notice, number one, that they build with the same desire. They, they want a place to live. They want a sense of security. They want a place where they can raise their families. Both of them are interested in religion. They want fulfillment in their lives. In fact, I can say I think most people that come to church have... One thing in mind, I want to go to heaven when I die. And I would say that these two men thought the same way. They wanted to go to heaven when they died. And so they built their houses for the same reasons. They want order and structure in their lives. They have the same desire. They want a healthy, happy, whole family. They want great values. They want good moral objectives. Secondly, we see that they build in the same location. And that's really one of the main points of the parable The conditions for both of these are pretty much the same. They choose to build their houses close to one another. And for the purposes of illustration, Jesus says that they chose to build their houses next to a stream or a river. And that's an attractive place to build a house, isn't it? A river view, that'd be great. Opportunities for recreation for the kids in the summertime, a place for kids to play. It's a great place to build a house. And in those days, it was also a good place to build a house because of water. If you had to dig a well or you had to dig a cistern, that was a lot of work. 
But if you could build your house next to the stream, then you could easily get water. And so you had an available water supply. But there's also a problem building next to a river. In Israel, there were a lot of peaceful-looking streams. There were rivers and streams that would flow lazily along during the summertime. But during the rainy season, when the rains would come, those little creeks would swell into a raging river. And a house that was built next to them could be swept away if it wasn't built correctly, if it didn't have a firm foundation underneath it. Before modern times, when much of the water in the Jordan River Valley has been diverted for irrigation, uh, the Jordan River would often overflow its banks. And so people who built next to it had to make sure that they built their houses in a, in, with, with the right kind of foundation. The Jordan River would be hard to cross in a rainy season. Now, if you go to Israel today and you think about the story of the children of Israel as they started to cross the Jordan River, you'd look at the Jordan River and you'd say, so what? I mean, all the water's been diverted, so the Jordan's not very impressive today. But we read in the book of Joshua that when the children of Israel came to the Jordan River, it was overflowing its banks at that time of the year. And in Joshua 3, it says, And as they that bear the ark, that's the ark of the covenant, as they bear the ark were coming to Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped into the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth his banks all the time of the harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam that is beside Zaratan. And those that came down from the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And so there were all of these tributaries to the River Jordan that as the water flowed down, Jordan was filled to overflowing. And so if you were to build a house right next to the Jordan River, you had to be aware that the floods would come. And so you had to be sure that house was built correctly. If you've ever visited Zion National Park, there's an ankle-deep stream that runs through a place called the Narrows. And when you go visit there, you can easily walk through that place if you'd like. But you don't want to be there after a cloudburst. Because when the rains come down through that canyon, the water rises very quickly and you can be swept away. So the location of these houses is the same. And since you can't see the foundation that's underneath, on the surface, everything looks alike. One writer compared it to tract houses. Here are two houses that a builder builds in a development and everything looks pretty much the same. Same floor plan, same windows, the yards look the same, everything about them looks the same. Maybe a little bit of difference sometimes. Uh, Outside paint may be a different color scheme and maybe it's got siding or stucco. But here are two houses that don't even have that much difference. On the surface, they are exactly alike. Same windows, same paint, same carpet, same cabinets. It's remarkable how much these houses are alike. Built in the same foundation, which what, what looks like the same materials, so that the stability of one and the fall of the other can be attributed only to one thing, and that's the foundation that's underneath. So here are houses, here are desires, here's the location. Two professions of faith that look to be very similar when in fact they are dissimilar. And that's because one builder is wise and the other is foolish. And for the rest of the time today, we're going to discuss the wise man. This is the man who had the right foundation. Jesus began with him 
And so that's where we're going to begin. So let's talk about a foundation, a foundation that's strong, one that's built in the right way. Of what does that foundation consist? So we're looking at now a foundation that is firm. Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. So we have the wise man who builds his house on a rock. Now that's a very simple statement. It would seem to us, what is the rock? Well, you listen to the children's song, and they say, the wise man built his house upon the rock. And then that song goes on and encourages you to build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is that a sufficient explanation of the rock? Well, I will say this, that Jesus is a solid rock. He is a firm foundation, and he's referred to that way in many Bible passages. For instance, in the book of Isaiah, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. That's a prophecy concerning the coming of Christ. He is the foundation stone. In Acts chapter 4, Peter talked about this, and he said that there are those that crucified Christ, and what they had done is they had rejected the foundation stone. So he says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Peter refers to Christ as being that foundation stone. Paul said that the church is built upon Jesus as a chief cornerstone. He said, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So ultimately, no matter how we approach this, we are going to end up at Christ. Christ is the rock upon which we must build our lives. But I want to show you something here because there's something more intended here than just the person of Christ. And it's actually very clearly noted in the passage. In verse 24 it says, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And so the rock that Jesus is speaking of here refers particularly to the sayings of Christ. Whosoever heareth these sayings. And that's the first requirement. To build your house correctly, you must hear the sayings. Now we know that the wise man and the foolish man both heard. They both built houses. And so what follows this is equally or even more important, and that is Jesus says, and doeth them. It's not just hearing the sayings. He says also doing them. So that's the wise man. That represents how he builds. You obviously have to hear. Both of them heard. They both built houses. That's why they look so much alike. But the difference between the two is in the doing part. Now make note here that Jesus is not speaking of working for your salvation. 
The purpose here is the evidence of your salvation. It's the demonstration that you have built correctly. It's what is produced in your life. And that's exactly what James said. If you turn in your Bibles now to James chapter 2, we'll look at what he says in relation to this. We know that Jesus could not be talking about work salvation because of everything else that he'd said in the sermon. He'd make the biggest fool out of himself that he could possibly be if he started teaching now that works are what actually save you. To build correctly is what these works produce in your life. Now, the gross error of the scribes and the Pharisees was a work salvation. So we wouldn't want to think that we spent over a year trying to explain the Sermon on the Mount only to find out that when we get down to the very last illustration that Jesus gives, that he says, well, you're saved by your works after all. No, he's not saying that. And James explains it for us well in James chapter 2. He says in verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And that literally rendered would be, Can that kind of faith save him? The kind of faith that doesn't produce works. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it have not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works." Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And this is as simple as saying that the wise man will always show himself to be wise. A saved person will always show himself to be saved. And a genuine Christian, one that says, Lord, Lord, like it says in Verse number 21, one who says, Lord, Lord, a genuine Christian is one who really does have Jesus as the Lord and master of his life. So how does he show that? Well, I want to give you four characteristics now, and there are many, many more of these, but there are four that will help us to understand how you build your house upon a sure foundation. What does that actually mean? What are the characteristics of building a house on a sure foundation? Well, we would say... The most obvious of these is that obedience is the objective. The wise man has obedience as his objective. So that's the first characteristic of a house built upon a rock. If it is built upon the sayings of Christ, then to build your house upon the rock means that you must obey the sayings. So what we're speaking of here are the commandments of Christ. And whether you take them out of the Old Testament law or whether you take them from the New Testament explanation of that law, it's still the same. You build your house upon the commandments of Christ and the obedience to those commandments. So either one of these is correct. We do understand that God has a law and God's law has a purpose in our lives. Scripture says that God's law, obeying his law, conforms us to the image of Christ. And Christ is the perfect standard bearer of the law. Now, when you preach this, there are a lot of people who say, well, no, 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 that's not right. We're free from the law. The law doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. We're not worried about the law anymore. And we do have that old song that we sing, free from the law, oh, happy condition, Jesus has died and there is remission. And so they say, we don't worry about the law anymore. We're free from that. 
But God's law has always been holy and just and good. And it's never stopped being holy and just and good. We're free from the law as far as its condemnation is concerned. But Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And so if he came to fulfill it, how could you ever be conformed to his image unless you have the law as the rule of your life? You see, you are conformed to his image through the law. Now, we know that the law is never going to save us. It was not intended to do that. The law is only to show us that we're sinners. The law makes it evident that we have disobeyed God and we are terrible sinners against him. The law shows us that. But when you're saved, you're only freed from the law as its condemnation is concerned. You are not free from the law as a way of life. In fact, you are bound to the laws of Christ ever so much more than before. And the thing that binds you to the law of God is your love for Christ. You're bound to the law because of love. Love compels you to serve Christ. Every transgression of the law is sin. And what do God's people do? They want to avoid sin. And this is what the Apostle John says. He says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So the wise man is the one who keeps the commandments. Obedience was the objective of his spiritual house. And so if you're a person that agonizes when you sin against God, when you recognize that your sin is a terrible offense against God, that's how you know that your house has been correctly. When you sin, you agonize about it. That's the wise man who has his house built correctly. So obeying Christ's sayings is building your house upon the rock of obedience. Now, secondly... Building your house correctly means that you have counted the cost. Another characteristic of a wise man is that he has truly counted the cost of his commitment to Christ. Now let's go over to the book of Luke, if you would, for just a minute. And here, uh, Jesus emphasizes these teachings again. In Matthew chapter 7, we know what he says there as the Sermon on the Mount. When you look in chapter 6, it's not the same time, it's a different time. That's the Sermon on the Plain. But both sermons contain similar teachings, and Jesus tells this story once again about the wise man and the foolish man. Now, Luke records a little bit more detail as he listens to Jesus. So listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6:47. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood rose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. So Luke here records something that Jesus said that shows us more about this unseen underneath. He says the wise man digged deep, and that's why his house was firm. I know a little bit about digging a deep foundation. Years ago, I was had a construction business, and this is one of the things that we did. We excavated footings for houses. And one day I remember I was called by a local builder, and this was, in fact, the largest builder in our town. He built a 1,000 or more houses every year. So that was a good client, believe me. So he asked me if I would meet him in one of their developments, and this was a development of tract homes, one of those places where the houses look pretty much alike. But he took me to some of the houses and began to show me the difference in them. And there were houses that had brick that was cracked and brick that was falling off. And the obvious conclusion was that there was something wrong with the foundation. 
They hadn't dug deep enough to go all the way down to find solid ground or to find the rock in order to build the house. And so what was happening is these houses were settling. And as they settled, those cracks would begin to show in the walls and the brick would begin to fall off. So this builder says to me, I I want you to start doing our foundation work and I want you to fix this problem. And so we began digging their foundations. And on many houses and other places you could go and you'd only have to dig about 24 inches down into the ground and there you would find something solid enough to build the house on. But in this particular area, where these houses were, the soil was much different. And so I sent a backhoe out there, and they began to dig down. And they had to dig down 12 to 20 feet into the ground to find solid ground in order to build the house. Well, the builder wasn't very happy about that because it cost him a lot of money. On some of the houses, we would fill their foundations with over 100 yards of concrete. And on many houses, 100 yards of concrete would be way more than you'd ever use on the driveways and everything else you'd use the house, uh, do in the house. But here, that 100 yards of concrete goes on the foundation, and the cost of that was great. But what's the alternative? You either do that, or the house later falls down. And that's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man knew that the area where he was going to build the house was a costly area. It would be expensive. The costs are great. And they say that some of the areas around where Jesus was speaking here, that in order to find a place to build a house on a solid foundation, they would have to go as much as 30 feet down into the ground to get the solid rock. They didn't have backhoes. And so that was hard work backbreaking work for a person to dig down in the ground 30 feet in order to build their house on a rock. Well, the foolish man was unwilling to do that. He liked the shortcuts. And so instead of digging deep, he just put his foundation on the surface. He just put it on the sand. So he didn't go underneath the sand. And although the houses looked very much the same on the surface, there was a huge problem that was underneath. Now, we can take that and we can compare it to what we hear taught in many churches today. When do you ever hear in churches today about the difficulty of salvation? When do you ever hear that coming to Christ is going to be hard on you, that's going to be hard on your flesh, and that there is a real cost to be counted in becoming a Christian? Instead, what we hear today in churches that believing on Christ is very simple. All that you really need to do is walk down the aisle, you sign the card, go into the water, and it's as simple as that. And the biggest, the biggest problem that you'll ever face, the hardest thing that you'll ever do in your Christian life is mustering up enough courage to come from back there to up here. That is not the picture that we have of the wise man. He digged deep, he counted the cost, and he knew that there was going to be a terrible cost in following Christ. You see, some of you have already experienced that. Some of you that have been recently saved, you've experienced this, that following Christ can be very difficult, especially in the families of Roman Catholics in the Hispanic community. You know that, that becoming a Christian, a real believer in Christ, coming to this church and hearing the Word of God preached here and becoming a part of this church, you already know that that means your family is separated from you. They don't want to have anything to do with you. Division in families. And Jesus said, that's the way it's going to be when you become a Christian. You have to count that cost. And in those days, becoming a Christian meant you lost your family. It meant that you lost your job. It meant 
that you could even be killed because of your faith in Christ. And that happened to many, many believers. It's not an easy road. Arthur Pink said it this way. He said, it involves a making a conscience of them. That is the sayings of Christ, the commands of Christ. The realization that these sayings of Christ contain not only good counsel, which is my wisdom to heed, but they are imperative requirements which I disregard at my peril. It involves actually putting them into practice so that I abstain from those things which he forbids and perform those duties which he specifies. Nothing is as hard as that. Obeying Christ in all things, folks, is hard on your flesh. The cost of it's great. And that's why you find not too many Christians that really want to obey the commands of Christ after they get saved. They fall into all kinds of trouble because the cost of following Christ on your flesh is exceedingly difficult. And yet, if you don't have a foundation that's deep enough that you can overcome those things, then it may very well be that you don't actually know Christ down in your heart. You have to dig deep enough. Now, the third thing about building your house on a solid rock and building it the right way, is that you treasure the truth. The wise man treasured the truth. And a deep foundation always treasures truth. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Hiding the word does not mean that you keep it secret. That doesn't mean that you put it away where nobody can find it. Hiding the word is the same as saying that you treasure it. You, you take God's word seriously. You know that there's nothing that can keep you from sin like the scripture. There's nothing that keeps you out of trouble like being able to recall something from the word of God each time that you're tempted. You know, I heard, had this discussion with Jared the other day. We were talking about why do young people have so much trouble? Why even do adults have so much trouble staying out of trouble? Why do they have trouble with their speech? Why do they have trouble always hanging out with the wrong crowd, being around the wrong people? Why do they have trouble getting out of bed and going to church on Sunday morning? Why do they have trouble vulgarizing Facebook and the tweets that they do? Why do they have trouble? What's wrong when you see teenagers and adults doing such things? What's wrong with them? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong. They don't treasure God's word. That is an immediate tip-off that a person does not read God's word. It's an immediate tip-off that they haven't been kept from sin because they haven't hidden God's word in their heart. They don't spend time in God's word. And so when you see people that do those kinds of things, you know that they haven't read and studied and stayed in God's word because you can't do both. You can't have God's word in your heart and live in sin. It doesn't work that way. And you recognize that a deep, firm foundation sees God or sees sin as God sees sin. Sin is what put Christ on the cross. Sin is what ruined the human race. Sin is the cause of every scandal, of every murder, of every theft, of every cheating spouse, every angry thought. It all comes from sin. And the one who treasures the truth of who God is and what he's done for us will not want to live in sin. So the wise man treasures the truth. He's never offended by it. He's not offended by what's preached from the pulpit. He doesn't want the preacher to stay off of hell. He doesn't say, preacher, don't preach about judgment anymore. No, he wants the preacher to keep preaching that because he needs that constant examination. He wants his sins pointed out. And he does so because he wants to rid himself of sin. 
And I think that there may be some of you that show cracks in your foundation when I begin to preach on sin because your faces show it. That face shows that cracked foundation. Shifting around in your chair when your sins are mentioned, that shows a poor foundation. You see, when you treasure God's word, you always want to be cleansed by it. That's what the Apostle Paul said about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of his purposes, it says, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know, I hate to keep beating the horse over and over again on this thing, but if you go to a church where they don't read from God's Word, if this Bible right here is not central to everything that's done in the church, if the preacher does not get up and expound the Word of God verse by verse and chapter by chapter and give you what God's Word says, then you have nothing to be cleansed by. You can't live without sin. Uh, you, You can't purify your life without the Word of God because that's what's intended to do. So you need to attend a church where they preach from God's word. And if if the preacher doesn't use it, then you can't be cleansed. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about the person who is a true Christian who, who really has dug that foundation deep and who really treasures the word of God. He says the true Christian humbles himself under the word. He agrees that what it says of him is true. Indeed, he says, it is not said enough about me. He does not resent its criticism nor that of other people but rather says to himself, they do not say the half. They don't even know me. He humbles himself under the word and all of its criticism. He admits and confesses his utter failure and complete unworthiness. That, friends, is a deep foundation. How do you stand criticism? Especially when that criticism is true and when you know that that person who criticized hasn't gone far enough in his criticism of you. You know your own heart and you know how wicked that it really is. You see, the one who treasures the word of God will hide that word in his heart so he recognizes that sin in his life and wants to get rid of it. Well, let me give you one more. And we're going to see some more as we contrast the foolish man next week. But the fourth one, how do you know that you have a foundation that's been dug deep here? You die daily to self. The wise man dies daily to self. You know the biggest sin that all of us commit? It's a sin that's common to everyone here without exception. Our biggest sin is self. It's the pride and the resentment that we feel when others are being served more than self. When we studied verse 12 in Matthew 7, you remember what I said was the greatest hindrance to the golden rule? The greatest hindrance to do unto others as you would have them do unto you is that we don't have time to do unto others because we're too busy doing for self. Self is the thing that controls us. Now what we have to do, according to the word of God, is die to self in order to serve others. The scripture that we just read in Philippians today said that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. And that is one of the hardest things that you'll ever do. Admittedly, this is hard. I mean, the biggest sin that that you can overcome is self because that is the root of so many other sins mistreatment, contempt, gossip. All of those are sins that are birthed in the love of self. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus taught we are to love our enemies. And I don't know how we're ever going to love our enemies when we can't even get it right that we're supposed to love other Christians. How are we going to love our enemies? 
Dying to self is the ultimate sacrifice that Christ made. He wasn't selfish. He didn't struggle with this. As we read a moment ago, again, in Philippians, why I say that's such a great passage. He didn't struggle with this. He willingly subjected himself to the torturous beatings and to the death of the cross. He poured out everything on the cross. And so he never could have obeyed God's law perfectly if he didn't do that. And he couldn't teach us to love our enemies if he didn't do that. You know why I say that? Because every one of us was God's enemy. There's not one of us that's disposed towards God. There's not one of us is what we ought to be. There's not one of us who loves God. The scripture says he loved us when we were his enemies. We're all his enemies. So when you're truly saved and when you're on God's side, you prove it by tearing down yourself and building up others. So this is just a part of what it means to build your house on a spiritual rock. This is the character of a true believer. It's a foundation that is deep enough to withstand the storm that comes now and the one that most assuredly will come later in the time of judgment. And friend, this is the question you need to ask yourself. How deep is your foundation? Is your foundation on a solid rock or is that foundation faulty? And so we have this parable that Jesus gives. There is, gives there, there is no time like the present to check this out. You need to find it out now. How has that foundation been built? Because tomorrow, it's going to be too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for the lesson that we learn here. The wise man who digs deep, who lays that foundation correctly. And as we've seen here, we must lay our foundation in your sayings, upon your word. That's the strength that we have from day to day. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to hearts today. Speak to Christians who have not hidden the word in their heart and they enter into sin and they have trouble fighting it off. Lord, we just pray that they would count the cost of digging that foundation deep enough so that it withstands all of the storms that are placed against it. And we pray, Lord, for those who don't know you today. We know that the outcome of this parable will be that those who do not have their house built upon you will surely fail. Their house will fall and that spiritual house of their life will be destroyed in the time of judgment. Speak to hearts today, Lord, and we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.